0: with me to Psalm 19, and I want to stand in reverence for the Word of God. I know that's formal. It seems kind of fundy, but we're going to do that this morning. We're going to stand in reverence for the Word of God because we want to ask God to teach us to impress the truths of His Word upon us. Believe me, you're going to sit for a good 60, 70 minutes this morning (laughs) anyway, right? But I'm going to read Psalm 19, and we're going to ask God to bless the reading of His Word. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, And there's nothing hidden from his heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much more than fine gold. And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask this morning that our our words, the meditation of our heart, would be acceptable in your sight. So the the words I speak, Lord, this morning, I pray that they would be from your word. Because we are desperate to hear from you this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Hey, grab a seat. Okay, so here's what we're going to do this morning. Our big idea is this. That God reveals himself most clearly to us in Jesus Christ That's our big idea, right? I'm going to say it two or three times. God reveals himself to us most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that with three main points this morning. As we kind of walk through Psalm 19, we're going to start off in verses 1 through 6, and we're going to see that the heavens speak, that the heavens are speaking to us even now. Secondly, in verses 7 through 14, we're going to see that the law speaks, and finally, we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. So I want to dive right in because, again, I don't want to keep you here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. I want to kind of get out on time, right? But first thing we're going to see is that the heavens speak. And look with me at verse 1 through 6 again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words Whose voice is not heard. See, while the heavens speak, the one thing that verses one through three are really kind of drawing our attention to is that they speak continuously. That they speak continuously. See, David cites that the heavens declare God's glory and his knowledge, his glory in verse one and his knowledge in verse two. And so how do the how do the skies in particular kind of show us those two things? And we don't want to get too far down into this and get into the nitty-gritty of exactly how creation works. But God shows his power to us in the skies. Now, let me ask you, have you ever noticed that big flaming ball of fire that moves across the sky every day, right? We should be concerned about this, right? There's a big flaming ball of fire that crosses from one end of the horizon to the other end of the horizon, and we feel like we've kind of explained this, right? Well, that's the sun, and really what's happening is the earth kind of spinning at this maddening, you know, kind of rate around the the sun, and we've kind of explained it all away, right? But truly, this morning as, as we talk about what the psalmist is saying is that this is massively impressive, that God is revealing something to us in His creation, See, the sun, it never diminishes in its radiance and heat, but continues to heat our planet and illuminate our days. And yet, God's created this big flaming ball of fire with just a few sentences in Genesis 1, right? You remember that? And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And so, boom. Sun, moon, stars, God speaks it into creation with power and authority, right? See, God shows his knowledge in the skies as well. It's a perfect design. God has so placed our earth in such relation to the sun uh, that if you moved it just a little bit closer, we would burn up. If you moved it just a little bit further away, we would freeze. See, God has shown perfect and intimate knowledge of what we need and what we desire as he's created the heavens For us to to see. But if we're reading carefully what he's saying here in verses one through three, the psalmist is really centering on on how they speak, drawing particular attention to the idea that God's creation is always talking. It's always talking. See, verse one underlies the idea that the, the skies proclaim present tense the glory of God, they're telling right now of God's glory. And verse 2 tells us that they always speak, both day and night, right? Day to day they pour forth speech, and night to night they display knowledge. See, these heavens are always bearing witness to God's glory and knowledge. They never stop talking. Kind of like my three-year-old, he never stops talking, right? But David doesn't stop there. Interestingly enough, in, in verse 3, God's creation speaks without saying anything. It says, There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. And so he goes on to say that uh, it's a constant, silent witness to the glory of God. So God's, God's creation is continually speaking. The second point is that it speaks everywhere. It speaks all the time, everywhere, in verses 4 through 6. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. see, the psalmist says that their voice or their sound goes out throughout his creation to the end of the world. And to give the idea kind of practicality, kind of zeroes in on the sun, right? In verses 5 and 6, he says, it runs its full course from one end of the sky to the other, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. See, all of these statements point to the sun's pervasive activity in all the world. And so it never stops talking, and it's talking everywhere, right? And ultimately, to God's clear, universal speech about his knowledge and glory. You see, here's the truth of what verses one through six are getting to us this morning there isn't a place on the earth where God's creation isn't always speaking. Soak that in for just a second, that God's creation is always speaking everywhere. And If we were to look at Romans chapter 1, this incessant witness of God's creation leaves all men responsible before God for their knowledge of Him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. He says that the invisible attributes of God have been what? Clearly seen. (laughs) The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen so that we see God's character through His creation. We see who God is as He shows us His world. Astounding for us, isn't it? We can see who God is by his world as we kind of take it in. And he follows up on that, that he, he takes the, the uh, invisible things and he, he makes men culpable before God for their knowledge of him through the creative elements. And so as we see God's creation, God becomes seeable. He becomes knowable through his world that he's made. See, because of God's continual witness in the heavens, all men are responsible for their actions. This is what's going on right now, right? So contemporary society, we have this notion that, that, that science has kind of stripped away all of our miracles, right? Like we can explain how the sun works. Well, it's fusion, dummy, right? Right? It's what we say, we kind, of, we kind of let science strip away all of our miracles, and that is to say that if, if we can explain some kind of phenomena that we see or observe in our world, that we really don't have to ask, ask the question, why is it there? Its mystery is removed. It, the psalmist kind of dives in this morning, and he doesn't want to ask how, he wants to ask why. Why has God put us in the midst of this creation? You see, the psalmist cuts much deeper, namely to tell the world of who God is in his glory and knowledge. You see, for us as believers, as we are trusting in Christ that that God is working all things and accomplishing all things to his good purpose, the skies tell a story for us. Like Abraham looked up into the night sky in the book of Genesis, and God said, count the stars if you can, because so shall your descendants be. See, for Abraham, the stars were a story of God's faithfulness and of his goodness. And for us who are in Christ, the stars, the skies, are also a story of God's faithfulness and goodness to his people. You and I are not creators. (laughs) We're not creators. You're saying, wait a minute, I'm I'm artistic, I'm creative, I do these things, right? But you're rearranging what God has already made. You cannot go out into your backyard and make another son. Don't even try. It'll be a bad thing to do, right? We're not creators. And when we look at the world which God has made, we see his massive God sized fingerprints on all of it. We're astounded by the power and knowledge of a God who has created his world. And so God is speaking. But the psalmist doesn't end there. The psalmist wants to say that there's an even clearer form of communication from God. And in verses 7 through 11, he's going to tell or 7 through 14, he's going to tell us that the law also speaks. It speaks in verses 7 through 11 to our our benefit. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. See, while the creation speaks all the time, everywhere, of God's glory and knowledge, his law is particularly directive for us. It's here in these verses, verses 7 through 11, that David describes the full benefits of God's speech, of God's communication to us. And David lays out a pattern for us to follow the flow of his thought. He starts with a synonym for the law, for God's speech. He uses an adjective and concludes with an effect upon us. So in verse 1, he states that the law of the Lord is perfect Reviving the soul, right? So the law of the Lord is an adjective. It's perfect, and it has this effect to restore the soul. See, God's law is blameless. It has no error in it and is completely and utterly flawless and as such it can revive us it can kind of bring us to life imagine the words of of jesus when he calls lazarus out of the tomb lazarus come forth and immediately it takes effect and draws that dead person out of the tomb and gives him life that's the law speaking to us giving us life and regenerating us in god's purpose Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In verse 7, God's law is sure, meaning it's trustworthy, right? As such, this law can make even the simplest person wise beyond their natural understanding. You ever think about that? God's law actually makes you wiser? The Proverbs tells us that, that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, that naturally, our state is to have foolishness, to be kind of rejecting God's authority and rule over us. But the law of God helps turn that tide when it works in its proper function. Verse eight, he says that the precepts of the Lord are right and they rejoice the hearts. Let me ask you: Do you do you find God's commandments to be joyful? Do you find God's commandments to be joyful or burdensome? Do you think that God's words actually limit your freedom rather than establishing your freedom? See, the commandments of God should bring joy to our life. Psalm 119, the psalmist writes that those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Have you ever considered... Uh, where you might be if it weren't for the moral restraint provided by God's law. Where would you be right now if someone hadn't taught you the Ten Commandments or if God had not spoken with clarity in His words, and His law? Verse 8 goes on to say, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's commandment allows us to think with clarity, to picture all of life under God's good, good design as it actually is. Verse 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean so that it endures forever. God promises that the heavens and earth will pass away, but my words will not, pass away. God's words endure forever. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. See, God's judgments, His pronouncements of right and wrong are faultless. And the psalmist will later confirm this in Psalm 51, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your eyes in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so David kind of comes, pulls all these things together in verses 10 and 11, and he, he encapsulates all of this speech from God in all of its various forms, his law, his testimony, his precepts and commandments, his rules. All of this is summed up in verse 10, more desirable than gold and sweeter than gold. Than honey. You see, this morning, as for all eternity, God's words are desirable. They're good for us to hear. God's speech to us is truly beneficial to us. And it's good for us to pause and just think for a second and say, what if God had never spoken? What if the agnostic was right and God had never chosen to reveal Himself? What state would we be in? What state would I be in personally if God had never chosen to speak? See, God's Word brings life to its hearers. Think about this. Think about in the New Testament when Jesus is doing ministry on the earth. How many times in the book of Matthew do you hear him say these words? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? He's saying it's, it's a privilege for you to be able to process these words that I'm speaking to you. And So there's this definite causative, causal link between God's speech and our well-being. One of my favorite passages is in James 1 where where James writes, he says, in the exercise of his will, he caused us to be born again. In the exercise of his will, he brought us, excuse me, I, I misquoted it, he brought us forth, right, kind of like Lazarus from the tomb. He calls us forth out of our death into life. How does he do that? By the word of truth. God uses His Word to create us, to kind of recreate us in His image, to make us new in Christ. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. Finally, John six sixty eight. when Jesus looks at His disciples and said, Are you going to leave Me also? And Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, God's words give us life. But how? Isn't this the exact opposite of our experience, right? So the psalmist is kind of saying, hey, this this law is a benefit to us. But our personal experience, isn't it different? We feel condemned by God's law. We feel condemned the weight of God's law pressing down upon us. When we read those Ten Commandments, we recognize that we have violated many of those. This is where the psalmist heads next. See, God's law speaks to reveal our need of salvation And David kind of gets to this in verses 11 through 14, excuse me, verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, David kind of suddenly gets very introspective here, doesn't he? He gets very introspective. If God's law comes with all of these benefits that he's just described, why does the tone so drastically change in verses 11 and 12, or 12 and 13, excuse me? Likely because David knows his own faults before the Lord. When God has laid down a law in Sinai, David knows that he's broken it. And look at the, the statement in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? The assumption here is that we have errors that we, that we know nothing about, right? Jeremiah seventeen nine says this, that, that uh, the, the heart is deceitfully wicked, right? So you and I uh, are so pervasively sinful that we, we don't even know that we're sinning, that we're violating God's standard. We don't even know all of the, the things that we're doing that are against God's law. When, when I first got married, I had a, an issue with, with people scraping their fork against their teeth. Like, it's my issue. I, I fully claim that. It's, it's on me. But we were sitting and eating dinner one night, and, and I'm eating with someone, and they keep pulling their fork against their teeth. And I'm going, they're doing that on purpose. They are doing that on purpose. They don't realize how that makes me want to curl up in the fetal position in the corner and just go hide. Of course they didn't. They didn't know they were doing that. They were completely unaware that it was so offensive to me. See, this morning as we stand before God, we're we're unaware of so much of our sin. And then the psalmist kind of gets down to that. And then also... Says the opposite in verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins or prideful sins. He doesn't just ask God to save him from the sins he can't see, he asks him to save him from those heavy handed, prideful, arrogant sins that he does in rebellion against God. So the psalmist cries out for God's mercy to be acquitted of his hidden faults, to be innocent of his great transgression. And it all kind of culminates in verse 14 where where the psalmist looks back and he says, and Lord, help me me not to to be a person of of loose words or or sinful inward thoughts. Allow my heart and my words to, to be honoring and pleasing before you. See, no matter how hard we try, scriptures tell us in Romans 3 that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glorious standard, right? So we all need God's grace. Even the psalmist, he's describing that he needs to be made innocent. He needs to be acquitted of hidden faults. You say, how's that going to happen? I mean, these things that I've done are in the past. How do I undo them? I can't go back in time and undo my sins. How How do I deal with this? Praise God this morning that that God's teaching on the law doesn't end in the Old Testament. In fact, when Jesus kind of comes on the scene, and this is our our final point that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law, he makes this statement in in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill the law. And as Paul speaks in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24, he he describes the law as a tutor which is meant to lead us to Jesus Christ. Its, its function, its purpose is to show us our sinfulness, to, to hold it up like a mirror to us so that we can see ourselves clearly, see how we've fallen short of God's righteous standard and fall hard upon a Savior who actually did fulfill the law, who actually performed all of its requirements. See, in reviewing the law and seeing God's requirements, we're made painfully aware of our shortcoming but we're also gloriously reminded of a law-abiding Savior who pleads His blood on our behalf. So let's get practical. While I was found to be a lawbreaker, Jesus exists as my opposite, the only one to ever fulfill all righteousness. When I was found to be a liar, to bear false witness, Christ was completely truthful. And so in my lying, Christ took my condemnation upon the cross and He gave me His righteous truth-telling in its place. If I was found to be disobedient to my parents or dishonoring to my parents, Christ lived in perfect submission to His parents. So that in the place of my disobedience and dishonoring to those who raised me, God has given me the righteousness of Christ in its place. If I was found to be adulterous before God, God has given me the pure, chaste life of Jesus Christ, who kept entrusting himself to His Father who never wavered in his faithfulness to his Father and continued to perform God's will. He's given that to me on my account so that now before God's throne, I don't stand condemned under the wrath of God. I stand free in God's grace in Christ. Amen? See, God's law exists as a photographic negative of Jesus Christ. And as the law tells you, don't, 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 Christ truly didn't. And so we have, as God's law lays out commandment after commandment after commandment, it shows us a form of who Christ was, until he finally came on the scene and showed us exactly what God the Father was all about. Think about it for a second. As so we review verses 11 through 14, who does it really remind you of? Who does verses 11, or specifically verses 11 through 14, really remind us of? Who is it that truly kept his Father's word and was rewarded with the name above every name, so that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue should confess, like verse 11 draws our attention to? Who was it that had no sin to rule over him, and even when buried beneath the weight of our guilt and shame, rose in victory over sin and over death? Who was it that when tempted in a desert, after nearly starving himself for 40 days and 40 nights, allowed the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart to truly glorify his Savior? It's Christ. Overwhelmingly, Christ is the Word from God who gives us life, the fulfillment of God's purpose in the law, the pinnacle of God's revelatory work. More beautiful than any sunset, more vast and unsearched than any horizon, He is our true and final Word from God. Such that when Thomas says, show us the Father, Jesus looks back with him without his tongue in his cheek and with a completely straight face and says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's revelation, the pinnacle of his speech to us. So this morning we could go a thousand different places, right? Talk about application, applying. What does it mean for God to be the pinnacle of his revelation, to be the finality of his speech to us? Mark Twain, uh, author from a long time ago. Yeah. You guys know who Mark Twain is. Who am I kidding, right? But he used to describe that he would have this dream where the Bible was actually, a huge Bible was on his chest pressing down against him. He felt like he was being crushed. By the word of God. And so this morning, how do, we, how do we reconcile Mark Twain's thoughts of the law of God and what we hear the psalmist saying about the benefits of the law this morning? Let me ask you, do you feel guilty? You ever have guilt in your life? Or you've performed something and you're ashamed and embarrassed of what you've done. It kind of eats at you. It gnaws at you. When you think about it, it puts that, that weird sick feeling in your stomach. You have a hard time sleeping at night. Do you find yourself in regular patterns of sin and remorse without repentance? Repentance. See, here's the truth of what we've talked about this morning. If we have remorse and guilt that doesn't push us toward the cross, then we're not doing it right. If our guilt and our remorse before the law of God doesn't push us closer to the sweet and kind, loving grace of our Savior, then we're not doing it right. You might find yourself playing the same game that I play, where you find yourself and you've you violated God's standard in some way, you've, you've sinned, and, and what you do is instead of retreating to those sweet disciplines of confession and repentance and restoration, you say, it's too soon. It's too soon. I, I actually need to wallow in my guilt to pay some kind of penance for the wrong that I've committed. You guys are all looking at me like I'm a freak of nature right now. Certainly we've all done this to some degree. We've tried to pay penance for our sin in all the wrong ways. And the truth of the matter is that as God has revealed himself truly to us this morning, as as God has shown us everything we need in Christ, we're lacking nothing. There's no missing ingredient for righteousness this morning. And God has paved the way for us to embrace confession, repentance, or turning from that sin, and renewal and restoration as we replay the gospel in our lives. Do we have to start seeing our most recent sin before God as a fresh invitation to enjoy the gift of God's salvation all over again, right? To take that most recent violation of God's will and to flee to the cross and find the sweetness of God's grace yet again. That's what this, the Old Testament writes and says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. This morning, I don't want to be a people that are crushed by our guilt and by our shame. I hope and I pray that substance, and I I think we've seen this, even through Facebook stalking, seen that substance is a place where we can flee to the cross and find grace in our time of need. And I would encourage us to, to start a culture where that happens, where we can extend grace to others as we have also had grace extended to us in Christ take just a moment. I just want to pray. I want to pray for that, for this church, that God would give us a a sense of God's goodness and mercy at the cross and allow this congregation to be one completely devoted to extending grace and mercy as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Lord, You didn't crush us beneath Your law. You didn't leave us to our own devices. Instead, You have sent to us Your own Son. And in His sacrifice, we find sweet restoration with You. So God, I'm thankful. Thankful for the grace You've provided for us. And I pray... For substance, this morning I pray that it would be a place that clings to the cross, that finds mercy in our lives and extends mercy to others. Lord, give us a deep understanding of your grace and your mercy to us. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.